welcome to MindShift, a podcast from the UCL School of Management. I'm your host, David Ravasi. I'm the director of the school and I study change in organizations. I study why and how organizations change or do not change, and how culture, history, memory, and identity affect these processes. MindShift aims to explore innovation in management in conversation with members of the school's diverse community of researchers. We'll be peering through the lens of their research to get an insight into the rapidly shifting world of management and organizations. Joining me today on this episode of the MindShift podcast are Clarissa Cortland and Felix Tambold, both assistant professors in the Organizations and Innovation Group at the UCL School of Management. Clarissa and Felix both study issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations. But they approach these important issues from different perspectives, so that they actually complement each other very well. Clarissa's work focuses on the perspective and experiences of groups that tend to be underrepresented in certain industries and professions as well as in leadership positions. Her research seeks to gain a better understanding of these experiences and to develop interventions aimed at improving diversity. Felix also looks at diversity, equity and inclusion within organizations. His research, however, tries to understand why some people are hesitant to embrace growing diversity and how we can leverage the psychology of shared identity to reduce resistance to diversity initiatives in the workplace. We will soon hear more about their research directly from Clarissa and Felix. In this episode, we will draw on their research to explore the challenges that organizations face in trying to create a diverse and inclusive workplace culture. We will also discuss the impact of non-inclusivity on the success of an organization as a whole. Welcome both Clarissa and Felix, and thanks for joining us on the MindShift podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here with you. Thank you. So why don't we start by explaining better what people mean when they talk about diversity and inclusion? It seems that many people may have different opinions about what a diverse organization looks like in practice. Clarissa, why don't we start with you? Sure. So when we talk about diversity and inclusion, a diverse organization is one in which there is a diverse representation in terms of protected characteristics such as age, race, ethnicity, gender, religion, these types of identities. And when I'm talking about diverse representation, of course, I mean not just at the lower levels of an organization, but at all levels, and certainly including the upper echelons, the upper levels, and the C-suite of an organization. So, for example, what I've seen a lot is that companies will boast about their diversity and boast about their numbers and say, for example, we have great gender balance in our organization. But then when you actually take a closer look, what you end up seeing is in a lot of organizations, an overrepresentation of women compared to men at the lower levels, and then as you get to the upper levels of an organization, a stark underrepresentation of women compared to men. So I would see that same company and say that this company has not achieved its diversity goals. And then when we talk about inclusion and what inclusion means, where diversity is sort of synonymous with representation, inclusion I see is synonymous with belonging. So this is all about the employees' perceptions of and feelings of belonging at an organization. The perception that their unique contribution to an organization is fully appreciated, um, they're valued and they're respected at an organization. Diversity and inclusion, they really, really go together. You can't have one without the other. Diversity without inclusion, it just won't last. You may have the numbers to begin with, but your employees won't stay. Nobody wants to stay at an organization or in an industry where they don't feel valued or respected. When you think about inclusion without diversity, 
in an organization, you may run the risk of seeming disingenuous. If you have inclusion at the beginning, but you don't have the numbers, then this might look like you are not necessarily walking the talk in your organization. So you really need both diversity and inclusion to be able to realize the long-term benefits of diversity. Thank you, Clarissa. That was very clear. Felix, your researchers also looked at this question, right? That's right. Yeah, I've done some work uh, with Miguel Ensueta from UCLA Anderson, where we try to understand how people perceive diversity demographics. So this is even if we step back from the uh, hierarchical dynamics that Clarissa was just talking about and try to understand how people make sense of you know the infographics that go around that show this company is 25% women, this company is 35% women. And what we find is that the way people perceive these diversity demographics is highly subjective and it's based on the groups they belong to. So if we imagine an organization that's trying to increase its representation of women, for example, we know that people will say, well, 0% women, that's not diverse, 50% women, that is diverse. We're interested in identifying where people draw the line in the middle where an organization tips over from being not diverse to diverse or diverse enough. What we find is that members of dominant groups, so it's those groups with the most access to power and resources in society, so in terms of gender, men are typically the dominant group, um, and in terms of race and ethnicity in the United States, where we ran this research, white Americans are the dominant group. Members of those dominant groups were faster to draw the diversity line, say we've achieved our diversity goals and diversity efforts are no longer needed, than members of non-dominant groups, the groups uh, like women and ethnic minorities who diversity initiatives are often trying to help. So the difficult takeaway from that research is you could have a situation where two people are looking at the same set of numbers, but they're coming to conflicting conclusions about whether or not that organization is diverse and whether or not more diversity initiatives are needed. And that conflict is rooted in the positioning of the groups these people belong to, with dominant groups trying to preserve their status, often majority status, and non-dominant groups trying to improve their status and increase their representation in organizations. So this is it's very interesting because if I understand correctly, what the two of you are saying is that diversity is not just studying an objective property of an organization. It's not just a matter of how objectively diverse the composition of the workforce is, but it's also a matter of perceptions of how diverse people feel the organization to be, how they perceive it to be. And this may change from person to person so that the very same organization may be perceived as more diverse by someone and less diverse by others. So when it comes to creating such a diverse organization, what are the most common difficulties that organizations encounter? Maybe we can start with Felix now? Yeah, that's a, good, a great question. And um, I can follow up on what I was just talking about in terms of the difference between dominant and non-dominant groups. So the difference between men and women and white uh, Americans or Britons and, and ethnic minorities in terms of their perceptions of diversity and what they think will happen as diversity increases. So. In some of my research, and this is with Yen Huo, also from UCLA, we've tried to understand why it is that members of dominant groups often push back against growing diversity or are at the very least hesitant to embrace growing diversity. And what we found is that uh, there's a, a variety of explanations that we can, we can bring to bear for uh, explaining this resistance to diversity. On the most intuitive level, I think we see a resistance to diversity coming around fear of competition over jobs and resources, real material uh, assets uh, that members of dominant groups have uh, long been able to take for granted as something that they have primary access to, and diversity initiatives are trying to redistribute more equally. But there's also tensions around identity, and our research really tries to 
focus on what these tensions are, these more intangible tensions. And what we found is that members of dominant groups push back against growing diversity because they worry about the loss of what scholars call prototypicality. To be prototypical in a context means that your group gets to enjoy the standing of being the norm in that category. So for example, take the professional domains of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Research has shown that people associate these professions with men more so than with women. When lay people and children are asked to draw a scientist, they typically draw a man. And men entering those professions don't have to worry about whether or not they're going to belong in those contexts by virtue of their gender in the same way that women do. When diversity initiatives are present, however, like gender diversity initiatives are present in STEM in uh, many nations, that can lead members of dominant groups, like men, to worry that this prototypicality, the standing of being the norm and the default belonging they enjoy from that, will be lost. That in the future they'll feel like strangers in their own land. And this fear of losing prototypicality is another driver of resistance to uh, diversity initiatives and it leads men in STEM, for example, to uh, oppose gender diversity initiatives and act in more chilly and unwelcoming ways to women entering those professions. So this reveals a real challenge for managers and their EDI efforts such that they can find pushback to their well-intentioned initiatives driven by factors they may not readily anticipate. It's not just about competition over jobs and resources, which may be addressed by expanding the pie and, and the gains that diversity bring, brings. It's about competition over identity, and that can be a trickier thing to navigate and anticipate. So it's really important for managers and uh, EDI leaders to anticipate and prepare for this kind of backlash and understand where it's coming from. You could probably argue that we see something similar at societal level, as immigration is challenging the prototypical status of the traditional citizens of a country. Absolutely. We, we have data showing the exact same processes, for example, with white Americans responding to changing demographics in the U.S., and even white Britons responding to changing demographics here in the U.K. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. And Clarissa, if I understand correctly, your research looked more at, at it from the point of view of the non-dominant, non-privileged. What do we know about their perspective on this? Their perspective and also the barriers that they face, right? So when we think about the industries and the positions in our society that are most associated with money, with power, with status, with prestige, these are industries such as tech, finance, engineering, science, and maths, as well as leadership positions, broadly speaking, right? What we tend to see over and over is that women and ethnic minorities are disproportionately underrepresented. And what this does is it creates the societal stereotype that women and minorities are less suited for these positions or they have less ability to succeed in these professions. Um, related to what Felix was saying about um, prototypes, this sort of sets up this idea that the prototypical worker in some of these professions and industries is white or male and or male. And so because of these societal stereotypes that, of course, are very stubborn and sticky and hard to remove, women, underrepresented minorities, often have to work under the constant threat of being judged or evaluated on the basis of these stereotypes. Um, and what this can lead to, this constant threat in the workplace, leads to this phenomenon that um, I study a lot called stereotype threat. It's really linked to these negatively stereotyped identities and the stereotypes that go with them in the workplace. And so what decades of uh, research on stereotype threat have found is that 
This constant threat of being judged on the basis of stereotypes, it causes employees to feel disengaged at work, um, it causes them to experience burnout, and eventually it leads them to want to leave companies, leave whole industries um, to places where they do feel more valued and respected and don't have to constantly navigate this threat in the workplace. And so when, going back to what I said earlier about increasing representation and inclusion, the reason why we really want to sort of intervene in, um, in this respect is because Diversity and inclusion will disrupt the stereotype threat process. What it does is um, it dilutes the stereotypes. It weakens the connection between the stereotype and the negatively stereotyped identity in such a way that these things can then protect employees from threat. What you're saying is important because there's certainly an argument about inclusion and diversity as being morally, a morally just goal in itself. But what you're telling us is that there are also potentially negative repercussions for an organization that is not diverse and inclusive. So it's not just bad for people in a dominant position because it makes them feel less valued and it prevents them from accessing positions and occupations, but also the organization may suffer in the long term. Shall we say something more about the risks that organizations incur or the costs of being non-diverse? Absolutely. So just in addition to sort of these outcomes that you see, the consequences of stereotype threat, like I talked about, sort of disengagement, burnout, and exit from whole industries. The sort of downturn consequence of that then is that this sort of paves the way for future employees, and especially underrepresented employees, or people who like to see a more diverse culture and a more inclusive culture and organization to then shy away from these particular companies and organizations. So it really limits sort of the, the diverse pool that is potentially available to the organization that the organization can then take advantage of. And Felix, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so another way of uh, answering this question is to talk about what many people call the business case for diversity. So we've been talking a lot about this social justice, ethical case for diversity, improving the outcomes of members of non-dominant groups in society. But a lot of businesses have been persuaded in recent years to pursue diversity because of the real gains they see in productivity and creativity uh, that's supported by decades and decades of research. Diversity, when it's managed well, leads to a lot of better outcomes, better decision-making for companies. However, despite this influx of uh, investments in uh, EDI efforts, a lot of companies still struggle to increase diversity in their ranks, and that's partly because of the reasons we've just been discussing. Members of non-dominant groups still not feeling welcomed in the workplace and leaving, and members of dominant groups pushing back against these efforts. So if companies really want to uh, capitalize on diversity, and I think it's important to not just get stuck on the business case for diversity, to recognize the social benefits of this as well, they really need to pay attention to all the challenges that are wrapped up in it and what a challenging task it is to really push back against centuries of inequalities and underrepresentation of certain groups in certain industries. Yeah, so, so striving for diversity, inclusivity, because it's the right thing to do, but it's also good for the organization itself, right? So going back to Clarissa, then what could organizations do to be more inclusive, more diverse? Great question. This is why we're all here, right? So... The first step, of course, is to always to take a deep dive into your organization's numbers, the representation as it is, and the culture. Really take stock of what is currently going on, not just overall, but again, at each level of the company is really important. Look at your breakdown of your demographics, of your hiring and recruitment systems and processes, pay, promotions, medical and parental leave, these kinds of things, because only by 
taking this deep dive and getting a sense of where your organization is, will you then be able to set the appropriate targets as far as your diversity goals? So then you want to set up your targets and really track them openly and transparently and set up some accountability around these targets. Um, you really want to assign responsibility for achieving these goals. Once you have set these targets and you start working on these targets, um, you really want to make your diverse representation visible because only by making it visible are you able to actually really unlock the benefits of diversity. When you're able to improve your diversity, one thing you can do is to really highlight the success of some of your diverse employees at the company because by doing this, you're able to get more visibility for um, role models at your company. And so some of my work that I've done in collaboration with my co-author Zoe Kinius shows that role models in organizations that are a source of social supports in addition to things like supportive supervisors and supportive peer networks and things like that. Role models, people who look like you, who have visible signs of success at the company, have this really unique special effect on um, underrepresented minorities at the company. And uh, that's because they really disrupt the negative cycle of stereotype threat for these employees at the company. Successful leaders who sort of look like you. They provide highly visible examples, disproving the negative stereotypes that often threaten women and minorities' work experiences. And this sort of helps these minorities to feel less burdened by this pressure to prove stereotypes wrong. They already have this visible example of someone who has done it, so the burden is lessened on your own shoulders to have to prove them wrong. And so employees can focus on developing their careers and can feel encouraged to apply for higher positions within an organization, that sort of thing. So role models are uh, one of the interventions that have um, been shown to be and demonstrated to be very, very important. And another thing that I just want to point out is when we talk about interventions, creating an inclusive and diverse culture, unfortunately, there is no one-size-fits-all intervention um, that we can talk about here. So uh, it's really important to investigate what support is needed at your particular company in your particular culture, especially because it often depends on the specific organizational context. And this can often be achieved just by asking. So, for example, if we talk about women in contexts or in organizations where they're underrepresented, especially in leadership, some women may feel that they could benefit from attending workshops and seminars or resource group meetings specifically um, geared toward their own career development and towards women's career development. Other women may prefer something more behind the scenes, such as the opportunity to connect one-on-one -on -one with um, other senior women at the company. So it's really just important to ask and see what kind of support is needed. This is all very interesting, but, but it focuses on what managers can do to encourage diversity and inclusivity. But how can those not in a leadership position contribute to a more diverse workplace, either from dominant or minority groups? Yes, great. So this is uh, another really great question. And so Felix talked earlier about how there are some people who may actively resist diversity efforts due to identity threat, like he, um, like he discussed. I sort of like to think about the people who make up an organization as sort of three different types when it comes to supporters of diversity. There are uh, there's the minority who may be your active resistors. There's, again, a minority, hopefully not as much of a minority, but again, a minority who are active supporters of diversity. And there's sort of this big middle group who don't actively contribute to diversity efforts because they think it doesn't apply to them or to their interests. Um, they have a lot of really important values and ideals and interests um, apart from diversity that they're spending their time on, right? So they're not necessarily 
actively um, participating in diversity. So finding ways to reframe diversity efforts as being in everyone's interest then becomes really important. And I've been really interested in this question of how to reframe diversity efforts to improve support for diversity. So in some of my earlier work, I basically try to reframe support for diversity efforts and support for other groups um, who are affected by diversity efforts. But I look at this from the perspective of minority groups and minority um, identities and basically show that to the extent that minority employees can perceive that they share similar experiences with dealing with discrimination and stigma with other outgroup minority employees, this sort of shared similarity in their experiences can actually act as a lever in a way to increase their support for other groups. So for example, when you think about ethnic minority employees supporting LGBTQ plus employees and vice versa. So at baseline, maybe support between these two groups might not necessarily be very high, but then as you improve or increase the sort of perceived similarity in the experiences between these two groups, you then um, see increased support between these two groups. And what's really important here is that these similar experiences can then get these groups to align together to change the culture as a collective, um, which I think can be really powerful. So as an organization, having spaces where employees can gather and share resources and support can be a great way for people to connect and share these experiences that they perceive are similar, um, and then can lead to opportunities for them to gather in greater numbers to enact positive culture change in the organization. Um, and then another quick example of reframing diversity efforts like I talked about, and another project that I have, again, with my collaborator, Zoe Kinius, we look at how highlighting the broader organizational and societal impact that people care about and people value can make them feel more motivated to become engaged in diversity efforts as well. So that tells us that the responsibility for making an organization more diverse doesn't rest exclusively with organizational leadership or with senior managers, but everyone can be involved in making a workplace more diverse and more inclusive, right? So you mentioned in the beginning active resistors, which brings us back to Felix's research and how managers can handle these active resistors and this resistance to changes towards making workplaces more inclusive and, and more diverse. Yeah, that's a great question and one I've tried to tackle in uh, research as well. If one of the reasons members of dominant groups push back against growing diversity is they feel that there is competition over this prototypicality, who gets to represent us, who gets to represent our profession, for example, is there a way in which we can make that professional identity, that broader sense of who we are, more inclusive? That, that's the question I tried to answer with uh, collaborator Karim Bendersky. Uh, in the context of firefighting in the United States. Uh, we were really interested in this context because it's uh, one that struggled with issues of diversity, specifically gender diversity, for decade after decade after decade. Despite a lot of great leaders and serious investments, the representation of women in the fire service hasn't really budged from around 5%, 6% nationally uh, for a very, very long time. And we tried to figure out why that's the case. And what we found was that what firefighters value in terms of what it means to be a firefighter, kind of what's rewarded and what's prioritized in the job are often these stereotypically masculine characteristics around physical strength and decisiveness and assertiveness and stamina. These sort of things that people do associate with firefighters. And it's this association between these stereotypically masculine traits and the job of firefighting that we think drives this 
prototypicality that men firefighters enjoy, right? People, when they think of a firefighter, they typically think of a man. They have a harder time imagining a woman succeeding in the role, and women face this skepticism whenever they try and enter the fire service. Is there a way we can make that prototype more inclusive? Well, we were pleased to hear that from our conversations with firefighters that there are a lot of stereotypically feminine traits that are really important to the job as well. What's surprising to many is that firefighters these days don't actually fight that many fires. Most of what they do is provide medical care to people in distress. And when you combine that with the fact that firefighters are often living with one another, supporting one another, and almost serving as second families for one another, a lot of stereotypically feminine traits around compassion, empathy, warmth, patience, etc. are really, really vital to the job. They're just downplayed in importance relative to the stereotypically masculine traits. So we developed an intervention where we reminded professional firefighters of the importance of these more stereotypically feminine traits. And what we found was that we could get them to think about these traits as equally important as the stereotypically masculine ones. And what that did is it removed this association between masculinity and success in the fire service such that we saw a decrease in bias against women firefighters and in more recent follow-up work, a decrease in support for gender exclusionary supervisors, those who would continue to promote the belief that firefighting is a man's job. Which brings us back to where we start, the idea that diversity and inclusivity is a matter of perceptions. And in this case, what you're telling us is that, and also what Clarissa told us earlier, is that managing diversity, managing towards diversity, is really about managing perceptions and self-perceptions. Absolutely. I would say that as director of the school, I'm very proud that we contribute in this way through your research to addressing such a crucial issue for organizations and society more generally. Now, we're in the conclusion of our episode today, and I wonder if you have one last word for managers that genuinely wish to improve diversity and inclusivity in their organization. So I guess to sum up, it's really important for organizations to, first of all, acknowledge the understanding that being underrepresented comes with challenges that are unrelated to employees' skill set or competence level. So one way that organizations can signal that they know this and they understand um, is to create safe spaces for underrepresented employees to gather and share support and resources. Um, this can look like providing organizational support for employee resource groups, um, as well as providing formal or informal opportunities for junior employees to connect with more senior employees. Um, so in addition to communicating to employees that their unique perspectives, skill set, and contributions are valued at the company, these kinds of efforts can help to normalize the discussion around identity and EDI issues, as opposed to further stigmatizing these topics. Thank you. And Felix, any last things to add? So the last thing I'd like to talk about is just how you can apply these insights from this work with firefighting to your organization or to kind of broader professions. I think that the way that prototypes get perpetuated in organizations and the way that certain groups are uh, privileged in terms of their prototypicality comes about through very common practices of promotion, hiring, and evaluation. What are the features the traits of employees that you routinely reward and prioritize. What do you communicate to your workers is really important on the job. If you take stock of this and you realize that what you're telling your employees really matters are things like assertiveness, decisiveness, stereotypically masculine traits or traits that are associated with people who are at high SES or white people in your organization, then you shouldn't be surprised that those people are the ones who get ahead most easily. 
what you should do is see if there's a way in which you can balance or make more inclusive the set of traits that you reward and value among your employees as a way to do away with these unfair and often disadvantageous associations between certain groups and success within your company. Thank you, Felix, and thank you, Clarissa. Thank you both for being with us today and telling us more about your research on diversity, equality, and inclusivity in organizations. And good luck. Good luck with your future research projects. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to MindShift, a podcast from the UCL School of Management. I was your host, David Ravasi, director of the school. If you can't wait for the next episode, why not revisit Series 1? While you're there, you can leave us a review to help us reach more listeners, and we'd love to hear what you think. We'll be back soon with another conversation about innovation in management and organizations with more fascinating researchers from the UCL School of Management. Until next time, thank you for listening to the MindShift podcast and bye for now.